act. Your voice is your currency in this life, man. Uh, the prism through which you see things, uh, that is uniquely fucking yours. And that voice is fucking valuable because somebody out there is waiting for that fucking currency to spend it on your fucking behalf. They dream about you in this business, man, just like they dream about you in his fucking business. They dream about the person that ain't done the thing that's been done before, and they've not met you yet. You are their best fucking hope because they've not heard your story yet. Your story hasn't been told, but you have to be honest and say the fucking thing nobody's ever said before, and you can do it. It doesn't take guts. You have no fucking choice. <laughs> What's up, guys? It's Logic. Hey, what's up, guys? What's up? What's up, guys? It's Logic. Are you all hear me? Is this what you want? Hello, everybody. I'm Logic. This is Logically Speaking, and I am here with a dear friend, first and foremost, uh, incredible source of inspiration, a man who was there for me when my dad wasn't. A man who really needs no introduction, but I have to introduce you because this is a podcast. Um, writer, director, executive producer, amazing father, loving husband, son, brother. Ooh, those are important titles nobody ever throws out there. The amazing Kevin Smith. Welcome, dude. Logically speaking is a fucking great title. Thank you. How long did it take you to come up with that? Like 12, 12 seconds, maybe 28? It's funny. It was my first thing that I wanted to do. And then I was like, no, that's kind of lame. Logically no, speaking. Oh my God. No, it totally fucking works. And it makes a lot of sense. We can curse, right? Fuck yes. yes. Pussy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, first things first. How are you doing today? That's good, man. I'm pulled between a bunch of different things. Uh, I, I recently I went crazy right back in January. So I went to a mental health facility uh, out in the desert called Sierra Tucson where they helped me find my marbles again. Mm. Um, but uh, when I was in there, the big thing was like, you got to put yourself first. That's what they kept trying to teach me. I was like, that's all I fucking do. I wake up and I'm unlike my father. I don't have to be like, what do I got to do today? I'm like, what do I want to do today? Mm. And then I think of a thing and I do a thing. And they're like, that's what you do, Kevin. Like, you know, you got to put yourself first. Never mind uh, the character you play. Never mind the work that you do. What about your authentic self? So the big push while I was in there was like, you, you really have to make time for yourself. And it was a tough concept to get my head around because I felt like that's all I ever did was soak up everybody else's time. Um, and, and so while I was there, I was like, when I get out, I got to slow down. And then when I got out, that did not happen at that's all. That's what we all say. Yes. I told these guys that. I was like, uh, I took a week off a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do nothing. And um, I did nothing for six days. And? And then God said on the seventh day, finish this album. And I, and I like made an album in like almost a day. And then my, my producers came and I was like, I made an album. And they were like, yeah, no shit. It's kind of crazy how <laughs> you made up for six days off with yeah, exactly. one day. I think that, you know, people like ourselves were so like our work. I have a, I have a line uh, in a song that's not out and it goes, uh, I'm a workaholic who gets paid to play. Yeah. And so I think with us, like, we, we love what we do. Right. So very much. So it's when somebody allows you or life allows you, because nobody allows you, you kind of make your opportunities for yourself. When you get to do whatever it is you dream about doing, the shit that you would do for free, if even if you weren't getting paid for it, it's very tough to turn that off. 
because you're like, there's part of you, there's a little bit of fear of like my foot's in the door or I'm in the room. I don't want to get kicked out. I want to, what if I walk away? When I was in fucking the nut house, <laughs> I said, uh, I said, they were like, why do you work so much? And I was like, well, I ain't Quentin. And they're like, what does that mean? I was like, well, Quentin could fucking, Quentin Tarantino could make a movie, fuck off for 10 years, not do anything come back, make a movie, and people will fucking line up for him again. I'm the other guy. I was like, I got to fucking make sure that I stay fucking relevant because my shit ain't Quentin level big. And, and so I always have to be working. Otherwise, I might not get back in. And the trauma therapist goes, how do you know that? And I was like, well, I... And then I realized I didn't know that. She was like, that's just something you tell yourself, isn't it? Bro, the world would line up. I don't if, know, bro. If, if I don't, I don't, I'm scared. I'm if, scared. There's deep fear in me that like, if I step away, welcome to the fucking club, man. Nah. I feel you, dude. This is a guy who made a fucking album after six days off. See, yeah. you know it. You feel that fucking fear too. It is, it is scary and it's different. Yeah. I feel like guys like us, we're the underdogs. We have millions of fans all around the world. And for whatever reason, it's like, maybe we hadn't, haven't received a certain accolade that we have almost been force fed systemically to want yes. and then have to ask ourselves why or this or that. Like, I feel you, but I'm here to tell you that if you fucked off for 10 years, day one, the line starts to come see your film, Oof, to come see God, you day I wanna, one. I want to live in your world where you actually, where, where I could believe that and stuff. I feel like I've been, I've been doing what I do 30 years professionally now. And, and I feel like I've been on an external journey for three decades where success came from outside. You know, all my validation comes from people being like, you're good at what you do. I can never validate my own self. And just recently, within the last few months, the journey has become internal, where it's less about like the hallmarks of success. And I've done this and I've done this. And me and Jay got our footprints and our handprints in the Grumman's Chinese Theater and stuff. Now it's more about like, all right, what's inside? What's the personal fulfillment that you have not been able to find elsewhere that keeps you up at night, that sent you into the fucking booby hatch and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's it's weird. I know as we sit here and talk about, like, we're the underdogs, a bunch of people on the internet are like, no, you're not. That's true. Fuck you. But, it, but, but I see, I think success that's what don't makes mean us great. anything. I think that's what makes people like us, and there's so many out there, we work hard because yeah. we don't feel like it's guaranteed. And, yes. and, and I know that feeling, and it can be, a, it is a very, very scary feeling. Bro, I woke up, the other day, and it was like, I ain't shit. <laughs> and I had to look in the mirror and be like, no, you are enough. You are. You know, like that's a- Isn't that terrible? That's that inner voice that's just like, like whoever told you you ain't shit that makes you say that to yourself? Like, I mean, why can't you be kinder to yourself? Be as kind to yourself as, as the biggest motherfucking fan. Like every once in a while you meet that fan that comes up to you and they're like, you're my guy. And I'm like, thanks. And they're like, no, like seriously, like <laughs> fucking you're the, you're the reason that like, I like to do the things I do because if I was you, like I would do how you do. They play you like an avatar and stuff. And in a, in the best possible way, like the same way you felt about people growing up, like someone you were a huge ride or die fan with. You have no connectivity to them. You've never met that person. Although now we probably met the people yeah, that we lionize. Sure, yeah, yeah. But like we invest deeply in people we don't know because they seem to be doing life the way we would do it if we were that person, if we were given the opportunity. And then now given the opportunities, we just work ourselves to the fucking bone, man. I wound up in that joint because like not only did I burn the candle at both fucking ends, over the course of three decades. But like, then I bought a candle factory and fucking lit all that <laughs> shit and burned that down. And like, 
it, and it don't stop. Even though I've now, like I, I like to say, like, I'm certainly, I didn't go into that place and like, now I'm wizened. Now I'm, I'm fucking Yoda when it comes to mental health. I'm still at the starting line of this new journey and shit. And even now I stumble. Like, you know, when, before I left, I was talking to the psychiatrist and this, this guy, Dr. Falk. And I was like, in here is this perfect world where like you say something and a bunch of people like we support you and they snap their fingers because they can't clap because that could trigger people, right? Oh shit. So like, um, I said, what happens when I get the fuck out of here? And he's like, well, he goes, you know how like when you're teaching a kid to ride a bike, he's like, and you hold the back seat and they feel like you got them, but then you're going to let go of that seat and they think you're still behind them and they're pedaling and then they realize you're not holding them and they fall down. I was like, all right, who am I, the kid, the bike? And he goes, <laughs> he goes, it's not so much a metaphor about that. He's going, but only a child, Kevin, would think that they would learn how to ride a bike on the first try. He's wow. like, you will fucking fall. He's like, but then you will get up, you'll get back on the bike, and you'll fucking pedal. And one day, this shit will come naturally to you. You won't forget, and you won't fall down as much. Um, that's beautiful. It is, but it's also like, really? Cause I paid $45,000 for healing. <laughs> you didn't fucking fix me to the point where I could ride a bike. I know they just quoted Batman, Michael Caine, Michael Caine. He was like, why did we fall down? Mr. <laughs> Mr. Wayne. Yes. He's like to pick ourselves yes. up. He's like, the size spend- of a tangerine. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one. You know, you saying that, how old are you? I'm now 52. Okay. So young man. So <laughs> young no, man. no, but you're, you're mature. You're how grown. old are you? I'm 33. Truly, young man. <laughs> Truly. Uh, okay. I'll take I got it. you. So what is that? Nine, do I got you by 19 years? Something. Literally could have been your father. You can be my daddy anytime. <laughs> um, no, nah, but yeah. So, but you saying what you said about kind of like figuring it out, but also realizing that day to day, you still don't know what the fuck is going on mm. at 52 years old has got to be probably one of the most beautiful and reassuring things while also insanely scary. Scary indeed. Because it just lets me know that like, it's almost like a child, right? So I'm, I, uh, Harley's how old your daughter? 23. She's going to be 24 next month. So my boy is three, almost three and a half. And I've noticed, especially with children, it's like when you think you got it all figured out, that's when they they flip on you. Yeah. And I feel that way about life. But to see you here balancing that and being so open and honest, I try to do that with my friends and the people that I work with. Like if I'm having a weird day, I'm like, I got to talk. I got to yes. talk. A lot of people like to internalize things and keep things inside. And at my deepest and darkest days as a professional, as a musician, it was because I was trying to be perfect. I was trying to be the strongest. And that in many ways was actually breaking me down. It wasn't until I accepted, not by any means what I would call weakness, but vulnerability, Mm -hmm. accepted that I can't do everything all the time. That's when things started to get a little bit easier. Well, think about it. In your field, strength is everything. Mm -hmm. Projecting strength is everything. One of the things I always loved about rap, because I was an old school rap kid going way back, man. Like Run DMC was where I started um, deep because here were two, three kids, if you count and you have to count Jam Master J. Of course you who do. Who would essentially come out and say, we're the kings of rock. And, you know, to the rest of the world, like, no, you're not. Like <laughs> Elvis Presley is a king of rock or anybody who's been doing this for years. And they had the, the self-confidence coming from fucking nowhere, coming from Hollis, Queens, which is somewhere, but like coming from a place that they the put on the fucking map. Right now. Like they spoke about their inner truth, which is that's who I am. That's who I, how I feel. Mm. I don't give a shit what the perception is out there. I'm the king of fucking rock. And that meant something to a t- young teenager who was like from literally from nowhere himself, from nowheresville fucking New Jersey, <laughs> to see that kind of self-confidence 
That's when I st- that's why I hooked up with rap at such a young age because of that projection of strength and self-confidence. Wow. So in a world where that, that hasn't changed, raps and, and hip hop's gone through many permutations and whatnot, but still the projection of strength and self-confidence is at the root of every hip hop artist. For you to be like, hey, there are days where I don't know. Mm. That's that's scary. It gotta be fucking scary. Yeah, it's terrifying. Like we had a discussion before we jumped into here and you were talking about feeling like an old man in rap where I'm like, what? <laughs> and you were like, oh, it's a young man's game. And I'm like, oh my God, like, it what do you mean? But like, there's that. Mm. There's the like, you always have to be looking over your shoulder to see who's coming up with a fucking hot 16 that's fucking better than yours or whatever the fuck. So you have to project that fucking strength and that self-confidence. It's a part of the story. It's a part of the game. To be vulnerable and say like, some days I get up and I think I'm shit. Some days I look in the mirror and I, I'm, I'm not the fucking king of rock. I fucking, I doubt myself on every fucking level. That's true strength. Like, could you imagine if that were to communicate? And that's what you're doing, man. Thank you. I, you know, I, it means a lot that, especially coming from you, <laughs> that you would say that to me because- The guy who made yoga hosers said I've, that. <laughs> fire. I feel like- um, I feel like there isn't a lot of voices at 33 in hip hop talk like, dude, I have a song called dad bod. I'm pretty sure I'm the first to ever do that. You know what I mean? It's like to, to your dad and you got a bod. That makes sense. Thank you. Uh, I feel like it really is super important to um, discuss and be open about what makes us feel vulnerable or mental health or these things, you know, especially because it had been so taboo until especially in hip hop until uh, around the time of like 1-800 and it was like yes. opening up the conversation. But even then I think, um, you know, I, I really love Kanye West a lot. Like that dude, his music is amazing. He's definitely said and done some wild shit, but I really, this man, like one of the things that he showed me uh, through his art is a lot of people uh, will look at Kanye and say like, oh, he's an arrogant motherfucker and da, da, da. Cause he'll like jump on a table and be like, I'm the shit. Mm. Listen to this. And he, but he's really just his biggest fan, you know? Yes. And, and I felt that the way. Ben Affleck of rap, if myself, you will. Yeah. I, <laughs> where I've felt like I wasn't enough or I wasn't this or I wasn't that. So I felt the need to almost scream it from the top of my lungs or put it in my art on purpose. And so it doesn't matter if you're Run DMC or Logic or Eminem or Kendrick Lamar. I think one thing that's really crazy is we all, and not just those of us in entertainment, given the world that we live in with social media, we all, there's so many people who could feel great one day and go, wow, they look in the mirror and they go, I feel good. Or I could go, man, I love this album. I'm so proud of this album. I can't wait to put it out. And then if you have a bunch of people being like, this sucks, or you're ugly, or you're this, or you're that, that mm. almost inception of negativity, it's, it can be a scary thing. And this is why I personally have stepped away from uh, social media personally. I'm still there. I still like to Talk you have a presence, fans. but you're not yeah. necessarily like, you don't use it to validate your existence where every day you wake up while you're taking shit going, what do they say about me? That's how I'm going to feel about myself. You've been able to disconnect from that, maintain your presence for, you know, fucking sales for business to be able to like tell people when a thing is dropping and whatnot. Yeah. But it's not how you define yourself. So like question. now how you define yourself is like artist, husband, mm, father, 100%. the real fucking things, yeah, as opposed to like, how do you define me? That's how I'll define myself. Think about this, man. 
Like Run DMC, and I, I keep harping back on I mean, Run DMC, the and people goats, are like, man. oh go my ahead. God, fucking how about? old are you? I'm very old, 52. <laughs> but those cats never had to deal with, they could go out there and say, I'm the king of rock. And they didn't have the whole world going like, no, you're not. And here's a thousand reasons why, because social media existed. They got to come up in an age without social media. It was print media, if yes, anything. If it was anything. It was, it was like- And they had to wait a month to say some negative shit to them. And what's really crazy is because we live in a world nowadays, both whether it's film, but especially in music, where like an album is out for an hour- and people fuck, have made their mind complex up. already wrote the whole, yeah. they, they wrote the whole thing. They said, all the thing. nobody got me. They said that they said the whole, uh, whatever they feel about it. And a lot of it is like a herd mentality, sheep mentality of like, Oh, this cool guy who has, you know, 50,000 followers just said this track seven wasn't that good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel that way. And it kind of becomes this now. You know, Clerks came out when 93, 94, 94. So and there you, was no social media at that point. I know, but if there was, I wouldn't, I honestly wouldn't be the person I am today because somebody would have been like, that ain't all that. I sit around and say shit with my friends and it's fucking black and white. What is it, Citizen Kane or Schindler's List? And they would have reduced it. And that's the thing. It's like this world reduces literally everything you do. You can make a fucking miracle happen yeah. and somebody or a bunch of people out there will reduce it to nothing. There's this YouTuber named Mr. Beast. Yeah. Oh my God. This and guy gets like 45 million hits. Yeah. Hundred literally, million hits. Yeah. Hundreds. And he fucking, he went to like some place in the world and like helped people. He like cured blindness. Like he like helped people see again. And people were like, fuck that guy. Yes. <laughs> like that's, you could, it's, it's literally insane. So a question. It's, and it's important to know why that happens. Now I'm not going to just say like all people are jealous. So they fucking say that shit. There are some people who legitimately feel like fuck Mr. Beast for curing blindness. Like they, it's not, it's not because they had a dark past or they had a bad day. That's just inherently who they are. But the lion's share of people who will go negative, it's a game. Mm. Like it's basically a bunch of people like, I'm going to say the worst fucking thing. We live in an age of hecklers yeah. where it's like whoever gets the worst fucking dig out there, they win that hour. Not even that day, that week, that month, that year, that fucking hour. We've reduced fucking everything down to moments. And if a motherfucker who has a job that he can't stand or a life they don't like can win that fucking moment by taking somebody like me or you down a thousand pegs or even one fucking peg, that's the best it's going to be for them that week that year, that fucking And fucking isn't that decade. sad? And that's something that's made me kind of be like, yo, this is, this is deeper than me. Like our biggest haters really love us. Like, even if they're like, I hate this, I hate this, but like you're watching, mm -hmm. you're reading the script, you're listening to the album, you're do, you're all, you are, you are consumed and we are so fucking awesome at what we do and are such staples in our craft, God damn it, that they have to talk about us all, because all if wanna, they don't, they're lame. All I want to do is fight you on. We are great at what we do. Cause I'm like, you are great at what no, you you're do. Great. I want to diminish myself. Why? I watched this documentary on cream when I was on the fucking airplane. Yeah. Cream used to be this rock and roll magazine that was like kind of the harder edged Rolling Stone. So Got Rolling it. Stone was more mainstream. Cream was like talking about bands and doing so with like you know, titty pictures in the book and a real fucking attitude. It was like the internet before the internet. And so if you've ever seen that movie, Almost Famous, oh, of course. Philip Seymour Hoffman played a guy called Lester Bangs. Mm -hmm. Lester Bangs was like their lead fucking critic. And this dude would write the most poisonous fucking prose on the planet and shit. Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, he couldn't do it every second. He would do it month by month. But this was a dude who like loved Lou Reed and then wrote the worst shit about Lou Reed after Lou Reed wasn't with the Velvet Underground anymore. And you could tell that it came from a place like he loved the guy, but he hated the guy. Mm. 
Imagine the whole world now has the ability to be Lester Bangs and everybody has a fucking platform to tell you how good you are and then take it all away to tell you how bad you are. And really, there's more clicks in telling you how bad you are. Of course. You don't get fucking a bunch of clicks if somebody's like, you know what? I fucking like this guy. People are like, whatever, man. I'm going to find that fucking negative thing because who will read that are the people who agree with the negativity and the people who are, don't agree with the negativity who are positive on you because they're like, who would fucking say that? Let me see this. And so, bam, it just gets attention and attention and attention. I, one of the best things ever happened in this world in my lifetime was absolutely the internet because it connected us. And if, if you were able to find like-minded individuals you never would have found in your life. I grew up in an age of pen pals. Mm. Like this is like pen pals to the billionth degree. But one of the worst things that ever happened in my existence was also the fucking internet. Same. Because it just gave voice to a bunch of people who have a lot of toxicity in them. And again, I don't want to... Just dismiss it as like, these all these people are toxic. Everyone's going through a fucking thing. Agreed. Everyone. Yeah. So even the people who are like saying hateful shit, they're going through a fucking thing. And so as a human being, I feel for them, man. Like, I don't want to... I don't want to diminish those people as well. I, I read this book recently. I didn't read it. I had it read to me. I listened to it on Audible. And it was called The Courage to Be Disliked. And the, in, in the book, the, it's set up like a dialogue between a philosopher and a student. And it's summed up toward the end of the book with like this, these three sentences, which I absolutely fucking love and now try to put into practice every day, which is, if I change, the world will change. No one will change the world for me. And it comes down to that. If you see shit that you don't like in life, you see social media that you like can't stand, it's like you change. Then the world around you will change. And hopefully that ripples down because no one is ever going to change the world for you. Nobody's ever going to come in there and be like, you know what? Y'all are right. All this social media is toxic. So I'm going to fix it like fucking Superman and Superman for to quest for peace. <laughs> when he was like, I'm going to take all the nuclear weapons, throw them in the fucking sun. That will never happen. Superman don't fucking exist. But if we change, if you change, if I change, then the world changes because no one will change the world for us. So you're saying you're Superman. No. I'm, I'm one man. It. I'm saying it. You're Superman. I'm saying I'm In saying I'm super comma man. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what's up, guys? It's Logic here, and I just wanted to tell you that this podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers affordable and convenient online therapy on a schedule that works for you. I'm clearly reading off camera because I want to make sure that you guys get every piece of information possible. It's the same professional service you'd get from an in-person therapist, but with the option to communicate when and how you want, by chat, phone, or video call. Getting started is easy. Just go to their site and fill out a brief questionnaire. Then they'll match you with a licensed therapist based on your needs and preferences. If you don't find the right match the first time, don't worry. You can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Go to betterhelp.com logic to get your first month of therapy for free. Now, I really mean it. This is important. This is special. Seek it out. If you need it, these people are truly here for you. They've been there for me. Ask like your it. question. Um, I was going to say, first of all, you just put it beautifully. Because I also, I, I agree and, and I resonate with so much of, of what you're saying. And I think a, a big thing that um, was, because now I'm really, I'm in a much better place and I'm not, you know, uh, made of steel. But for the most part, now when somebody says some shit, I'm just like, huh. You are, you're, you're, you're definitely, you're right. You're not made of steel, but you are definitely one of the healthiest motherfuckers I've ever met in my life. Oh, wow. Um, when I was in fucking the nut house and shit. shit, Bobby was like 
texting me all the time, oh, giving me fucking strength. One of the few people I told at the time that I was, and I, we barely knew each other. We yeah. made a music video together and shit, but we had a really tight connection and shit. So when he was like, where are you at? I was like, ah, I don't know how to say this, but I went crazy. <laughs> he was there with support all the time. Love and support, man. Like very like you're in the right fucking place because the alternative is fucking dark and stuff like that. So you are definitely one of the healthier individuals. And, and I dare I say one of the healthiest individuals I know. That being said, none of us are fucking perfect. So you too succumb sometimes to like, why did I have to say that? Yeah. And like, you know, I look at you and you're at the top of your fucking game and have been since you were a fucking child. And to see that you, even you a master of the universe can still also feel like, God damn it, that hurt. That's meaningful. Dude. And that's meaningful for a bunch of fucking people. You have to keep putting it in your work, Bobby, because at the end of the day, there are a bunch of people who look to you to be entertained, but figure out who the fuck they are. And if you're, if you can tell those people that it's okay to be fucking hurt, it's okay to be fucking vulnerable. It's even I, Somebody like you can feel that fucking way. You normalize it for a bunch of people who would normally have to be like, no, I gotta be strong. I gotta be fucking strong. We were raised in a generation I was of like, you know, people were like, I'll give you something to fucking cry about. So you didn't talk about vulnerability at all. Um, and then, you know, when I got into the business, it was all about, you could, you gotta fucking make it and fake it until you can make it and shit like that. And that mindset persists like for people who aren't even in our industry and shit fake it until you can fucking make it it's important that people understand you can break everybody fucking breaks I've tom hanks breaks yeah i don't know why i chose him but everyone seems to love tom hanks yeah he's the goat he's great but like even tom hanks tom hanks just did an interview recently where he's like look sometimes i'm an asshole on set and the whole world was like, because <gasps> we all count on him to be yeah. the voice of reason and shit. But he's like, look, I'm a human being, man. We're all human beings. We're all figuring this shit out. Like nobody got the fucking key. Nobody got the, the fucking cheat sheet or the cheat codes that let you know what's what. Um, and we're all figuring out bit by bit that we live in the past and we live in the future. Nobody fucking lives in this moment right now. Because in the past, you sit there and dwell on the shit you said yesterday. Why did I do that? Why didn't they react better to that? I said hi to that person. They didn't say hi back. What the fuck is wrong? What did I do? And shit like that. And then we live in the future because we're so terrified of what's to come. We fret over what's to fucking come. Because we live in those two places, that means we abandon the here and now. And this is the only fucking place to be. We got no control over the fucking past. Man, the past is the past and it happened. And it's fiction at this point because it's behind us. We have zero control over the fucking future. We have no changeability over either of these things. Nobody knows what's going to fucking happen next. The only thing we have right now, and this is going to sound pithy as fuck, but I got this. When you're in the mental hospital, they give you all these little sayings and shit. We have the present, and that's why it's, it's called the present because it's a fucking gift. Mm. You don't know that you get tomorrow. No fucking, no day is promised, man. Like I just had this beautiful little doction that I had for 18 years. Healthy as fuck, man. I thought this motherfucker make it to 20. And then my wife told me, she's like, she died in her sleep. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, and the dog before she left reminded me that no day is fucking promised. I thought I'd have fucking two more years watch this dog wind down and shit like that, but no. Out she fucking went. Tomorrow, out we could fucking go. So why bother fucking spending time thinking about like what might happen when you have no control over that? It's a fucking fictional narrative. If you're going to write a fictional narrative, you're going to sit there and be like, well, this might happen and this might happen and shit. That's fucking all make pretend. If you're going to make up shit, make up good shit. 
at least if you're going to pretend like, you know what the future is, be like, you know what? Maybe fucking tomorrow I fucking, you know, the aliens come and declare me fucking king. Give me billions of dollars and shit. That's as <laughs> viable as like the negative shit that we write about ourselves. So in a world where we have no control of that direction and that direction, that way is depression and this way is anxiety. All you have is right now. And right now, we're sitting here having a fucking conversation, man. We don't know what happens tomorrow, and we do know what happened in the past, but we can't change that. This is beauty. There's truth right here. What the fuck is wrong with this? Nothing, but everyone spends their time up there and back there. If we can impart anything to anybody listening, be here, be now, man. Nothing's wrong in this fucking moment. Nothing. Do they get? Do they give out Pulitzers for podcast guests? Is that, <laughs> this shit is yo. Thank you. If they you did that in a dollar, would get you a copy <laughs> of USA Today, maybe. Wow, man, that that. Um, thank you for that. It's I, important that you know that what you're doing means something, and you you know, fucking when you put out the one eight hundred song, think about how many lives you fucking saved just by putting out a beat. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. You know what I'm saying? Like, just you, you look. You have you have no choice but to create music. It's in your fucking soul. You created a piece of music, not only made people be like, hi, hey, ho, but also fucking saved lives. How many mm. people can make that fucking claim? Now, some piece of art is always the piece of art that saves somebody's fucking life. But you literally put information out there that saved lives. Not one person going, this is the song that I go to when I feel sad and shit. You gave people information they didn't fucking have. Mm. Like practical information to the point where didn't the government be like, you did a thing. Congress, yeah. Congress wrote me a letter and was like, Congress can't get together on anything, bitch. And they got together to be like, you know what? He fucking saved lives. Thank you, man. Yeah, that was a special time in my life. And uh, speaking of that, um, I was uh, with Rain Wilson recently. And I had he a- He just a, wrote a book about spirituality. Soul Boom. It's sitting right over there, actually. I should have got him to sign it. Look, look how many copies he gave you. I know. He could have made it to eBay, though. <laughs> made it out to eBay. So- um, You need the money. Look at this fireplace. <laughs> Yeah, look at this AI-generated <laughs> fireplace. It's, it's pretty true, cool. man. This is chat. We're just in the middle of a chat GPT. We're not even saying this shit. The internet's making it up for us. Yo, real talk, though. Yes. I feel like with that song in specific, like there was a time where I like was fucking sick of it because it's like, you know, everywhere I go. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just death and death and death, but also life, but hard times and this and that, 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 and I'm doing the song all the time, all the time. And people are like, it's the suicide guy. And like, that, 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 that. and I was just like, fuck this shit. Like, like, and I loved everything it stood for, love everything it stands for, but it was just became so almost overbearing that this is all I was known as. And then you take a little break and you, and I, now I go, oh my God, if there was ever anything to be remembered for you know, it's mental health and, and providing, uh, an opportunity for people to find some sense of relief. Now you're allowed to be human about that shit too. You're allowed to be like, what the fuck? I'm tired of hearing about that shit. This is a human fucking reaction, man. So you allowed yourself that humanity, but you also were able to circle back to it and be like, you know what? Yeah. That is fucking like, that is a legacy. And I'm a young goddamn man in this art, in this art form. And I have a fucking legacy that some people would kill fucking have <laughs> at this point. Remember fucking Leonard Nimoy played Mr. Spock for yeah, years and years and years. Sure. At one point he wrote a fucking, uh, live long and prosper kids. At one point he wrote a book that Use he's like, logic. I am not Spock. And then years later he wrote a book where he goes, I am Spock. Oh shit. <laughs> like he, he came around to it as well. Everyone gets sick of what they do, man. Like I, you know, I will be honest though. I've never got sick of being the clerks guy. I fucking loved it. It's the thing that, like, I'm sure they'll put it on my grave. He made fucking clerks and he never stopped talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like me being biracial. 
I just always talk about it. It's, <laughs> it's in uh, the music. It's but, in the yeah, words you say. I know, but I love it. I love me. It's important. Wait, I'm sorry. It's you're biracial? I am. I'm kidding. I am. It's a, it's a, welcome to the, what is it? Eight years now since joke's been going on. It's fantastic. You took shit on it recently for the Ice Cube cover, correct? Yeah, which is funny. Everybody's all like, what the fuck? And blah, blah, blah. Da, da, da. When they ask you for you, like, where's your 23 and me? Prove it. Yeah, literally. You know what's so funny is my dad, um, my dad, after he had me, did two things. He got a uh, paternity test. <laughs> the fuck? And then he got a vasectomy, which is hilarious. And <laughs> oh then, my God, so that's it. And it's then, you th- and no, then 30 years it. later, he had a baby. What happened? He reversed it? No, just it just was one in the chamber. just popped out. But the funny thing of you of talking about that, so the Ice up. Cube thing. So for those of you out there who live on Mars and maybe didn't see this, I covered Ice Cubes Today Was a Good Day, which was really funny. Bold. And uh, yeah. <clears throat> but I was like, who gives a shit? This is good music. And I'm, we're just strumming guitars and having fun. Like, So it was funny to see a lot of people be like, this shit's awesome. It's fun. Look at Logic. You don't give a fuck. He's just having a good time. And then there's other people like, you don't do that. You don't cover the song. And meanwhile, Ice Cube's like, keep being you, brother. Good shit. Like, you know what I mean? And it's like, it's like, what? Now, like, wait I, a second. If you feel like an old man in, in hip hop, in rap, yeah. how old is Ice Cube? I mean, he's got to be 50 something. But I mean, is he, so, so is he like a Mount Rushmore yes. figure at this yeah, point? Yeah, for sure. hundred percent. How many people do you think are on the hip hop Mount Rushmore? It's a lot of More motherfuckers. It's like Mount Rush, the club. <laughs> like it's a club. It's like a whole, like you in a club where there's a DJ there and everybody's made of stone like Medusa. Like, now I'm going to ask you a, a very lot. real question. <clears throat> do you feel you're on that? Mount Rushmore at this point. Of course not. I think, yeah, no, definitely not. I think that I, I'm one of the biggest rappers in history without a doubt. I know that I am. That doesn't put you on Mount Rushmore yet. No, because I'm 33. We just talked about your legacy fucking song. (laughs) I know, but there's, it's different. It's a, it's a culture. It's my culture. I love it. Um, But we all got to. Wait, we take our turn. We it, it is what it is. Because I also, if I'm being completely honest, yeah. I don't really give a fuck. Like for like, I've learned that I want to be on Mount Rushmore. I don't want to be on the rap Mount Rushmore. I don't want to be on the film Mount Rushmore. Look I don't want to be you. this. I just want to be on Mount Rushmore. I want to be nice. remembered for me. Like I know I can rap. I know I've got hits. I've got billions of streams. I got plenty. And I can sit here and say all this. It's like, none of that is what people will remember me by. They're going to remember me for my message, for the love that I put out in the world. And if it's a Mount Rushmore and it's just one me there (laughs) in my own world floating on an asteroid, you know, through the universe, that is all I could ever need. That's healthy. Yeah. That validation was something that I always used to want. Yeah. I wanted to be on the Mount Rushmore of rap, but it's like, also like, what does that even mean? It's like, what does that even mean, bro? I have, I have accomplished more in this career than some of the biggest rappers that maybe had a year or two here. I don't know, man. And I'm not here to compare myself to them or Mm. they to me, which I used to do. Mm. What I'm here to do is just clap for them and be happy about, you know, my brothers, because I used to be full of envy and jealousy coming up. Like, how come his streams does this? And how come he, and how come, and how come, because that's what the fucking internet does. And it makes us just pits us against each other. And it's Mm. like, oh, but my, the algorithm isn't working for the likes on this and all this shit. And it's just like, bro, my baby's healthy. My wife's hot. My dick works. I'm blessed enough to financially be stable and I have friends who love me. What the fuck? Why do I, did I even give a shit about that? And sometimes it still pops up. You know, I could see somebody I love like Kendrick and I'm like, damn, he just killed it. Now I gotta, and it's like, no, Bob, 
clap for this man that you love. You don't got to try to outwrap anybody, dude. Just make art for your fans and for yourself. That's the illusion that there's a ladder and that there are those above us and those below us, but there is no fucking ladder. We're all on the same plane. And there may be people ahead of us and people behind us, but we're not in a fucking race. Everybody is on their own single fucking journey. And the only thing you may have in common is like, oh, we do a similar thing for a living. But it, there is no comparison. Everybody is fucking journeying alone. Mm. And how you gauge where you are in your journey is not against fucking others because nobody is having the exact same fucking journey that you're having. So you get to gauge for yourself. You don't get to fucking look at uh, Kendrick Lamar and go like, where am I in this thing? He's in his journey, you're in your journey. And mostly, I would say 95% of the time, it sounds like, you know that, you understand that. And then yeah. the other 5% of the time, you're a human being that's like, wait, what? And then it goes <laughs> away. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But couldn't we say the same thing about you and Quentin? We could, but I don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> look, that's for smarter people. No, you're crazy. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'll, forever. I'll, well, I mean, look, I don't even compare myself to Quentin. He's on definitely on his journey and stuff. But when I use him as an example, it just feels like there are people who like win no matter what. And don't, I'm not saying he don't have to work. He works fucking hard. I know hard. what you mean though. It's but, almost where it feels like, obviously people like him, Drake, like they're so good at what they do. It's always quality yeah but sometimes i feel like they could just like put something out that's just like fun not even thinking about it and it'll still do that you know whatever and i feel like sometimes i feel like for me a person like myself i'm like no i have to fight with every release with yes. every piece of art and you sweat over every word yeah but also that's my journey yeah you know what i'm saying and that's dope and when i hear you know a Drake song that inspires me to want to be better. Or when I hear or watch a Tarantino film, like, bro, I cried at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So let me tell you a story. Okay. So Once Upon a Time. <laughs> so this is like 2019, bro. So 2018, I'm on top of the world. When 800 comes out, then I do songs with Marshmallow and this and that. Da, da, da. And then I do, uh, I got the record with Eminem and I drop an album called Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. I love this album. I love it. It was a special time. I went to Japan. Like I did all these things and I was so sure. I was like, this is it. This is going to Mount Rushmore me. This is the one. This fucking album is going to be the best thing in the world. And then I put it out and everyone like shit on it. They were like this shit, like within 30 minutes, they were like, this is the, like, it's an what hour the, album. What was the chief complaint? Overall chief complaint. It was just like Logic sold out. Logic's trying to make trap me, like just dumb shit that doesn't matter. And right. it's, I'm not the first they've done this to. They've done it to a lot of people. And the same with film, right? It could be like, oh, the first was a classic, but the second, the second, da, 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 whatever. And so like me, I realized that even though I thought like that it was going to blow up and then right. it didn't, um, it's actually my most successful album. It has, you know, billions of streams and it's one of the biggest things, um, that I've ever done. But once it was, once it had come out, um, that's actually what made me want to retire, which I did for like three days. But <laughs> It, it was, it was a thing inside of me where like the, the internet, like I was just so on it all the time. And then I started to realize I was, tr I was looking for all of my worth on what other people were saying. 
And then so the funny thing is, is that I was like, oh yeah, you guys, yeah, whatever. Like I'm making commercial music. Like I had this chip on my shoulder. And for the first time in 15 years, I wrote pen to pad instead of on my phone. And I did a whole album called No Pressure. And it was my retirement album. And it's fucking did like a quarter million units in the first week. And it's celebrated. And like, it was funny because I was like, I'm out. And in a way I got my flowers. Like everybody was like, wow. Like there was this moment when I was like, damn, like, Radio personalities, DJs, rappers, musicians, even complex. <laughs> People were like, man, this is great. Good for you. He's out. And he went out on a high note. He stuck the landing. Yeah, but. Was it weird then to be like, oh, I'm not done yet? Well, the thing that made me feel this way was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And mm -hmm. for those of you who haven't seen it, you're a fucking idiot. Last half hour of that movie is fucking astounding. So I watch this and I feel like Rick Dalton. I feel like this guy who had a heyday, who was once on top of the world, and he's still Rick fucking Dalton. He's right. still that guy. He's still living in the Hollywood Hills. He's still this. He's still that. But he has become the heavy. He has realized that like he's the guy who doesn't really beat up the, the, he's not the star that beats up the bad guy anymore. He's become that he's become this almost B rated television star. And I'm like crying. <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm like, like I'll cry sometimes in Tarantino films and your films. And it's, but it's always more like dialogue and like the score and like all this other shit. This resonated with me. Cause I was like, I am a fucking failure. I know. I mean, I was like, I am a failure. It's they hate this hear, album. Kids. One of the most successful people you'll ever meet felt like a failure. I mean, utterly. Like I'm sitting. I was. I was sitting on a lot of money. I was sitting on a lot of accolades. I mean, I'm selling out Madison Square Garden, and then I'm looking at my phone like, oh, you're not shit. So I'm watching this movie, and for those of you who haven't seen it, like I said, it's about this 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 star and his stunt double, Cliff Booth. I actually have a rap about it where I say, uh, I'm feeling close to the edge like Rick Dalton in the booth. Yeah. Or, I'm feeling close to the cliff like Rick Dalton in the booth, like I'm on the edge of- My daughter's in that movie. I know she is. Harley's in that She place. snapped. The whole movie, uh, he, he finds out that uh, Roman Polanski, famous director, moves in next door and Sharon Tate, mm. um, beautiful actress. And he's like really down on himself one day about it. And- he goes home with um, his stunt double who's drop, driving him off, uh, dropping him off, excuse me. And then he kind of, he sees Roman and Sharon go up this beautiful gate all the way to the, all the way to the, the their house, their home. And he goes, oh, shit, you know who the fuck that is? And he's like, that's Roman, isn't he? He goes, yeah, it's Roman fucking Polanski. He, now Rick has had a day. Yeah, Rick has basically been told by Al Pacino's character that like he's on the down and down. And he's going to need to do some things to get back up. And he's fucked up. He cries. He's like crying and shit. And then he sees Roman and he, and he starts laughing and, and Cliff's like, man, you seem good. He goes, yeah, I mean, it's Roman fucking Polanski. For all I know, I, I'm, I'm a dinner party away from fucking starring of one of Rosemary's baby's fucking movies. And he feels really good. And I know what that feels like. And so I watch this movie and then there's all this other crazy ass Charles Manson wild shit that happens. And in the end, I mean, I'm feeling like my, everything is over. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And I'm watching this guy who feels the same way. And in the end of the movie, after almost dying, Sharon Tate rings him on the thing. Cause he's outside of the gate and she's like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, 
this fucking hippie tried to kill me. I set the bitch on fire in my pool. <laughs> and they're like, oh my God, hey, you, you must come up, come up, tell us all about it. And it could make me cry right now, dude, because that fucking score comes on. And sorry. And I still haven't met Tarantino. I don't know how this Are you serious? I know. And the fucking gate opens, bro. And when that gate opened up, Rick didn't just walk into his future. I did, man. And I realized that even when you think you're at rock bottom or when you think the world hates you or when you think this, you're one dinner party away from like, it's true. It. And so it was, it was, it, 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 it made me fall in love with life and it made me go fuck a career and it made me focus more on presence. Damn. Tarantino almost made me cry right now. See, you're the, the once upon a time in Hollywood for you was somebody else's 1-800. Oh, wow. Shit. Oh my God. Think about that. <laughs> you had your Tarantino moment and you'll have many more and shit. I can't believe you haven't met him. I know. Yeah. It's a uh, one day. It's, it's funny because that's my alter ego, Bobby Tarantino. Yeah. That's like my alter I'm well ego. well aware. I was, uh, I was so, when my kid was talking about, uh, my daughter's name is Harley Quinn and she was, uh, she went after, you know, a certain age, I think I put her in a movie called Yogozers and she was like, I want to be an actor. So she started pursuing it and like takes her craft real seriously. And one day she was like, there's a movie that I'm going to try out for. I want desperately. And I was like, what is that? And she goes, once upon a time in Hollywood. And I was like, Quentin's movie? I said, kiddo, lower your fucking standards. <laughs> I was like, everybody wants to be in that movie. I want to be in that fucking movie. I was like, she was like, you don't think I could do it? I was like, it's not about that. It's just all of Hollywood is racing to be in that flick. Like go in, do your damnedest, but like, just don't be crushed. Like if it don't pan out, cause all I could see is her going into audition, not getting it and then fucking dealing with six months of her like mm. miserable, being miserable and shit, being down on herself. And, uh, she went in and fucking got it. I was just, she <laughs> came out and she was like, you know, thanks for the confidence, dad. And I was like, it's not that I didn't have confidence in you. I was trying to soften the blow in case it didn't fucking work out, but I will always be super appreciative to Quentin for casting her because the benefit of that was she. the next movie she did was the movie that me and Jay did called Jane Silent Bob Reboot, which mm -hmm. is a sequel to Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. And Harley played, my daughter played Jay's daughter in the movie. So when she showed up to set, if she hadn't done Quentin's movie, she would have been like, fucking, I'm in another fucking Kevin Smith movie. I'm in another <laughs> one of my dad's movies. And shit. But she came off that set, came to our set with like such fucking confidence. It's like she got there day one. She was like, I just came from a real director's oh, set. Shit. <laughs> and she gave a fucking phenomenal, thunderous fucking performance that was not only wonderful and one of my favorite performances ever given in anything I've directed. And I don't just say that because she's my kid. Like, I just love what she did with the part. She elevated fucking Jay. Oh, wow. Like, she made Jay cry in the movie real fucking tears, man. And, like, you know, the movie, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which we made in 2001, is just a fucking joke fest. And, and I love it to death. But, like, I'm in a different place in my life. For, so Reboot was going to be funny, but it always had to have something to it. And it was about being a dad. And, and Jason Mewes is inspired more. I've been a dad for years, but... Jason Muse had just become a dad and became like the fucking most phenomenal father I've ever seen in my life. I was almost sad that I had had a kid long before him because I was like, shit, if he had gone first, I would have learned how to do it properly. Like oh, this wow. motherfucker is dialed in for the father he never had. He became 10,000 wonderful fucking fathers to his daughter, he's Logan. He's the family man. Truly. Now he's got a second kid, yep. Lucian as well. So the movie was kind of about him, like where I was like, I'm going to fucking make it about Jay being a dad. And, and I thought it was cute that like he would play my kid as 
like my kid would play his, his kid and vice versa and shit. And we have this scene in the movie where like, you know, they have to kind of split up. They get to this convention. They're going to the um, Chronicon and they're going to go their different ways and shit. And so, you know, it was meant to be like kind of an emotional moment in the midst of this ridiculous comedy. But the kid, my kid is, you know, she gives her on-camera performance. We shoot her side first. And, you know, she gets emotional and she wells up and shit like that. And then you turn around and you shoot the other side. So she's off camera. So technically she ain't got to cry because she's off camera at this point. We're on Jason. But she's such a pro that she, like, brought the fucking tears wow. even though she's off camera. So Jason, who's grown up with fucking Harley and, like, an uncle. And Harley used to carry around this pink flat elephant that she called Ye Ye. And we never understood why she called it Ye Ye until fucking she you know, commanded the English language a lot better. And we realized she named it after Jay. She was oh, trying to say fucking wow. Jay. So Jay has been an influence in her whole fucking life and stuff. And so she's crying off camera and Jay's on camera. And the most amazing fucking thing happens. Like I'm behind the monitor watching this shit. And I'm like, right on, man. We've got a great side with her. Now we're getting really good side with Jay. And all of a sudden I lean forward because Jay is getting fucking glassy eyed in the take and doing something that, you know, this, this is a buddy of mine that I've known for fucking 30 years. I've been standing next to uh, personally and professionally in movies off camera and stuff. Crying in movies was never part of his matrix. <laughs> you know, he was just the funny guy that I was like, this guy's a true American original. I'm going to put him in a fucking movie and shit. And there he is like crying like a fuck, like Ben or Matt could fucking do. And after the take, I gave him a big hug. Big hug. I was like, what the fuck? Where did that come from? And he's going, she was fucking crying off camera. He was like, I couldn't fucking handle it. She was crying and made me fucking cry. She elevated his fucking wow. performance. And I, you know, credit her with that. But I also credit the confidence she came to our dippy little movie with coming off of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Because she felt story. fucking handpicked by one of the best, right? Like, I feel bad for her because she's an actor. And, and she they, these actors today, they spend so much time doing these self-tapes. Used to be you'd go into audition, yeah. meet human beings. Now, since the pandemic... They realize, oh shit, we don't even have to meet these people anymore. They'll send in fucking tapes of themselves. So they do these self-tapes. And this kid and her boyfriend, both actors, do like five to ten fucking self-tapes a week. And they're like, they do, it's not like three-page scenes, doing like ten-page fucking scenes. Wow. They really put them through it and shit. And whenever I see her doing that, I was like, why are you fucking waiting for somebody to pick you? Like, you're just putting your fucking fate in somebody else's hands. Choose yourself. I was like, your, your fucking father made clerks, man. Your fucking uncles made Goodwill Hunting. They... They fucking put themselves in the role to be like, I'm going to write myself my fucking future. Like, don't wait to get fucking chosen. Choose your fucking self. So I'm hoping sooner or later that rubs off and she fucking writes and directs a movie, writes herself the part that she's always dreaming about having. But for him to fucking, you know, it still means a lot for her to be fucking tapped, to, cho to be chosen as an actor. Um, for him to fucking choose her was... Everything. Wow. I, I, but I, I was shocked. And not because I was like, she can't handle this, but just because I was like, what are the chances that fucking she gets into a Tarantino movie? It was, it was everything in our family. Well, you know, what's great about this story is actually um, how we met. So in 20, when did it come out? What year did uh, the reboot? Reboot come comes out in 2019, right before the world fucking fell apart. Okay, bro. So you hit me up in 2019. Yes. Right after the whole confessions thing happened and I'm watching Rick Dalton walk up Roman Polanski's driveway and I'm like, fuck this shit. And I get literally back to work. I get 
Well, no, I get off the internet as well because I was like, that was a thing where I was like, fuck this. Like I've been putting so much of my self-worth into what other people are saying rather than just looking in the mirror and pat myself on the back and being proud of myself as a man and a musician. And I get off and I don't check it. Three years, I think. I hit him. I I noticed that logic followed me and I was like, Jesus, he's fucking young and culturally relevant. (laughs) I was like, that's fucking huge. And so I hit him up before we made reboot. And I was like, and I never, I don't fucking instant message anybody. I barely know how to fuck. I know how to post on Instagram, put up stories, put up a fucking main feed. But I like, even now to this day, if I have to fucking check a message, I'll ask Jordan, Jason's wife, who yeah. runs our company, like, how do you fucking get to the messages? <laughs> Sounds on like Instagram? me nowadays. Such an old man. But I fucking found yours and I was like, hey man, we're making this Jane Silent Bob reboot movie, and I heard you were a fan. Like, do you want to be in it? Never heard back. Didn't feel anything. Like, I wasn't like, well, fuck him. Yeah, I was but just three like, years go by. Now, let me tell you the other <laughs> side, okay? Okay. So I, 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 I'm funny. just, I forgot about this. I'm at my producer's it's true. house. This is how we met. Yeah, six six, and I'm like working on some shit, and my manager hits me, and he goes, he sends me a screenshot from you, from three years before, <laughs> and it was like not even a week. After I had gotten off, so so we just missed each other. Right. I like punched a wall. Like I was like <laughs> literally, I was like, what the fuck? I was like, oh my God, like I can't believe this. Oh my God, no fuck. Cause in my mind, I was just like, I'm am like the biggest fan of you. And here you are, this guy who's like fucking so been there for me and and we never met, we never talked, and you reached out to me, like, what the fuck? I can't believe it. How could I do this? And you had your number. You had given me your number. And I was like, oh my God. So I, I, I texted you and I was like, okay, let's get myself <laughs> together here. And I was just, I said what I said. I said that I love you and I appreciate you. And I was like, I was not leaving you hanging, man. Blah, 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 blah. Like all this different shit. And then we just started talking. And this is where, where it gets really cool. So, you know, you sent me a few nudes. Um, I did. Which I, I was like, here are my dick pics. It was great. We're just talking about like life and children and love and like never really about anything else. Like, and then we're just, we would text and we, this and we, that, da, 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 da. and then one day I make a song and I send you, and I'm, you know, I would send you different songs, like fun shit. And you would t- really listen. You'd take the time to listen. And I send you one song about weed and you go, I'll never forget. You're like, I'm on a hike right now and I'm listening to this. And this song literally embodies what it feels like to be stoned. <laughs> yes. And I, on God, jokingly go, you should do the video. One of the greatest living directors ever in the history of this fucking shit. To you. I, I, I jokingly wipe my ass with a comment that I'm throwing out of the window to a friend. In a very thirsty way. I was like, yes! And he goes... <laughs> No, he literally goes, yes, no, no, you, no, you go, I'm in all caps with an exclamation point. And I go, fucking fuck you. And, and, and you're like, no, really, I'm serious. And I'm like, bro, chill, shut the fuck up. You know what I mean? And he's like, he's like, no, man, let's go. Let's do it. And I'm like, what? Are you serious? He goes, yeah. And then immediately I go into Bob mode. I'm like, listen, like, I, I don't want anything from you. Like, I just love our friendship. And, yes. and you're like, look, kid, shut the fuck up. You want to do this? I'm like, yes. 
And you were the, you were like the author of that piece. You had the idea, like, let's do it a quick stop. Like, I want to do it. I have this idea about like Quentin's suitcase in Pulp Fiction that you don't see what's inside, but you open the bag and it glows and shit like that. So it was like the easiest yes in the world. Cause it wasn't like I said yes to a thing and now I got to figure out how to make it work. You gave me every step. You're like, we could do this. We could do this. We could do this. I was like done and fucking done, man. And it was such a wonderful experience. Like we had done clerks three, um, and, and that had been like a year prior, but, but it had just come out. We were still touring actually. We were touring the movie at that point and stuff. Cause I think we shot in October or November or something like that. Late October, early yep. November. So we were still on tour with the movie and I was like loving life because, you know, the, the way I structure the movies now is like I take them on tour. So I'm there with an audience of a thousand, fifteen hundred people watching the fucking movie and just feeling the fucking love. And it's like a party and shit. So I was deep in Clerks 3 world. But you wanting to do the video at Quick Stop because you're like, what if we shot at Quick Stop? And I was like, well, I know a guy who can get us in there. <laughs> but being able to go back to Quick Stop with Brian and Jeff, who played Dante and Randall, um, with me and Jay putting on the fucking outfits. And then you brought an entire family, literally your family, as yeah. well as your extended family. And we got to put everybody into it. It was just so fucking celebratory. Yeah. Like it was like one of the easiest things I've ever done in my life in oh, terms wow. of like working on a thing. And just so wonderful. There was so much fucking warmth to it. I got to bring back people that like we had just made the movie with a year before. And it was almost like getting to do a rap party at wow. the fucking, and literally it was a rap party because <laughs> it was a fucking rap song, pun intended. I like that. Dad bod. But yeah. um, it was, it was beautiful, man. It was, and totally meant to be, but you made it fucking happen, but you made it so easy. So easy. Like I kept telling Jordan, I was like, she's like, you coming up with this? I was like, no, it's a suggestion. Oh, Bobby man. came up with this. It's really nice. Well, thank you. It was uh, it's a life moment for me. It was cool seeing, like you were, you were as enthusiastic about being at Quick Stop, like being behind the counter, being on the roof, meeting Brian and Jeff and, and Jason as like a fan who comes up at a convention or something like that. I am a fan at a convention. It was beautiful. What do you it mean? It was really like, nice. Bro, my whole life, like I used to watch Disney Channel and shit. Tell me if you guys remember this. I used to watch Disney Channel. And then, like, it'd be like, tune in for the Disney Channel original movie, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then they would show, like, a... Uh, was that you doing the ears? Yeah. <laughs> that was beautiful. <laughs> I knew exactly what I, I raised a kid who yeah, watched yeah. Disney Channel. So I'm watching this shit, and then they, they would do, like, those, those, like, really, like, intimate, like, sweet commercials where it's, like... It's this family and, and like the little girl like gets up out of bed and she's like, mom. And she's like, go to bed, baby. Like da da da. And she goes to bed and then like the mom and dad like come in and wake her up and they're like, we're going to Disney World. <laughs> and, and then they go to Disney World. It's this whole thing. And so, you know, I'm in a crack infested house and, you know, there's murders and drug dealers and everybody running around and my life sucks. And my dad had Disney Channel. So fuck you. But what I'm saying is, yes. well, we had it illegally. So, yeah, we had the, <laughs> black box. the Disney Channel. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm watching this and I'm like, damn, I'll never, I'll never get to go there. And then I would also watch movies like Clerks and Dogma and I could go on and on. And you didn't feel that way about Clerks. Like I'll never get to go there. It's literally like a couple states away from Yeah, you. but I didn't even realize. <laughs> like a shitty convenience store. I mean, I watched it a million times and then I then later found the whole story. You right. know what I mean? As a teenager, like I'm like understanding all this other shit. But there was a part of me that's just like, nope, 
no way. Like I'll never, like, I didn't even think about it. I was like, oh, I wish I could live in this universe, this view askew universe. You know what I mean? Like, I wish I could, I could do this. And so you bringing me there, bro. Oh my God. Like there was a moment where I just like, we were in the theater and I went to take a piss, but like out of my eyes. Cause I was actually just crying. <laughs> and I was like, I can't believe this shit. And like, you're so sweet and fucking nice and everybody's cool and professional. I think the thing I love about you is you, you fucking command, you command, dude, you fucking, you don't take shit, but you are so nice and so kind. You get the fucking job done, That's but you, age. but you also play Oh God! and you're always, you know, Letting everybody know, like, look, we're at it again. We're here. We might never get this opportunity again or da 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 da. Like you're so you're so present and that really um struck a chord with me. And now speaking of universes that you think maybe you would never get the chance to live in, yeah, yeah. you went to the set of Star Wars, right? With JJ. Now JJ hit me up. He was like, he was like, Man, don't you love JJ? First of all, I mean, Such what a sweet up? guy. You're t- uh, truly a fanboy. Dude. Like fan of, uh, obviously you could see in, in like when he makes a Star Wars movie, like Force Awakens, you're like, this is made by a fan. Yeah. Um, and everything he does, you could see like Super 8 when he made that movie. It's like, oh my God, he's a fan of like fucking young Spielberg movies and shit. Sure. Um, but he, when he's talking to you, when he's fanning out on you, you feel like the sun is shining on you. And this motherfucker commands fucking billions of dollars and mm. shit like that. And has box office that equals that. And still he's real human and you feel like the love from him. Like, oh, he, you're here or you're in his presence or you're working with him because he fucking likes what you do. What you've done speaks to him in some level. Yeah, man. I remember he, when I first, uh, he reached out to me uh, years ago through email and my manager was like, Hey, um, he's an AOL guy. Yeah. He was like, JJ, JJ Abrams wants your uh, email. Is that okay? I said, fucking fuck you. <laughs> yes. Why are you asking me this? Super Give it to okay. him right now. And so he texts me and he's like, Oh, I listened to your album. Everybody that you did with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And this is blah, 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 blah. And he's like, if you ever want to play, just hit me up. And I'm like, I'm hitting you up right now. Like, what's up? And then I go to the fucking bad robot office. And the first thing that I loved about the bad robot office is like, you walk in office upstairs. It kind of does all the toys and trinkets. But the first thing I noticed there's color everywhere. Like literally there's people of color, there's women. It's not like this bullshit. Like it it feels so, it feels like the world. Like you go, you go to JJ's office and reflects what the real world looks like. The real fucking world. And it's just, and his wife and his, you know, his daughter, an incredible singer. His uh, daughter's an artist as well. She went to school with Harley. Her and Harley were in plays together and stuff. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. That's how I first met her. There's a picture that me and JJ took at San Diego Comic-Con. And then the kids like did, like replicated the picture, like right down to the, to the glasses. Yeah, I put it up on my Instagram years ago. It was yeah, adorable. Dude, Gracie, yeah, she, Gracie, Gracie crazy. fucking turned into like the thing she wanted to be. I know, which is amazing to see, you know what I'm saying? And, um, his son and that's, you know, me and him met and you know, he's, he'll do, he does like Spider-Man comics. Yeah. They did a comic like book together. Yeah. He's, he's amazing. So just everything that like, it was a great time in my life to meet this man and to see like literally one of the most powerful men in the world, you know, Mm -hmm. in this industry and all this other shit, just be so nice. Nice He was just nice to everybody. And I couldn't believe it. And then he was like, I was there one day randomly and he was like, Hey, you want to be in star Wars? And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, you want to be in star Wars? Here, he's like, here, come in this room. And I'm like, okay, what the fuck is going on? So we go in this room and, um, there's some guy and there's a microphone and he's like, Hey, read this. And I'm like, okay. What does this say? They're at the end of the corridors. And he goes, okay, that's good. Give it to me one more time. But like scream it. I'm like, they're at the end of the corridors. 
And he's like, all right, you're a stormtrooper. And I'm like, oh my God. Like two. Yes. Me this too. is the kind of guy. Which you know? one? Which one? Uh, Force Awakens or Rise of Skywalker? The first one he did or the last one he I did? I think it was the last one. I think it was Rise of the Skywalker. I was in uh, Force Awakens as a stormtrooper who shouts some shit like in that. a scene that fucking had Han Solo, Ooh. Chewbacca. Fucking, it was amazing. Love it. And then um, when I had a, my heart attack, five years ago I had a heart attack. Mm. Massive widow, make a heart attack, almost died, right? JJ, <laughs> He's like, yeah, no problem. Anyway. I lived through that shit. No. JJ wrote me and he was like, you have to fucking survive. If you survive... I will put you in the next star. Oh, shit. So I did survive, and I fucking, when he went to back to work on Rise of Skywalker, I was like, bitch, you promised I'd be in a <laughs> Star Wars movie. And he had me come out to London, and I got to be on the set and shit. And watching him work on set was adorable because it's it's like a, like uh, they, they were shooting a scene where they're going through this village and shit, that mountaintop village had all the snow, and he had to populate it with creatures. So they literally brought in 20 fucking creatures. Some were played by two people in a suit. Some were in fucking outfits. Some were in makeup. And it was like they encircled JJ and he went through and he was like, I'm going to take that one. I'm going to take that. It was like a kid at an action figure store. Wow. Going, I want this one, this one, this one. He set them all up and shit. Um, and, but, and he, true to his word, man, if you watch Rise of Skywalker, me in the background walking through a fucking scene and shit. He Amazing. Was, he was yeah. very adorable. He's a good guy. He's a very good guy. So speaking of your heart attack. Yeah, yeah. You know, I remember hearing about this and like freaking out, you know what I mean? And then hearing that you were doing better and things like that. I mean, it, you it, used it, an expression before when you talked about your retirement where you're like, I got my flowers. Like I honestly felt like when I, when I uh, almost died, I put up on the internet the next morning. I was like, Hey man, I had this heart attack, but I'm okay now and blah, blah, blah. And I really expected, because the internet is going to internet, that they'd be like, well, fuck you, you fat piece of shit. Maybe you should <laughs> fucking eat better. And this is your fucking fault. But for the next fucking year, mm. it was literally the flowers that you talk about. People just being like, I'm glad you didn't fucking die, man. Wow. Like, you meant a lot to me. Kevin Feige, who fucking controls the Marvel Universe, right? The producer mm. of all the Marvel movies. I was driving. It was like two weeks after I got out of the hospital. And uh, I was on Mulholland, and I got a phone call. I didn't recognize the number. I answered it. And they were like, hold for Kevin Feige. And I was like, Kevin fucking Feige? All right. And then he gets on. He goes, Kev. Is Kevin Feige. He's like, we met once a long time ago. He's like, I know we're not super familiar with each other, but like when I heard you had a heart attack, like I was so scared. And then when I heard you got, you got through it, it made me happy. He's going, because as a fellow Kevin from New Jersey who wanted to work in film, like you've always meant something to me. Wow. And I was like, this motherfucker is about to offer me a fucking Marvel movie. <laughs> and he was like, all right, bye. And he hung up and shit. <laughs> but it was just such a kind thing to do, man. I, I When you use that expression, yeah, I, I got my flowers. Like instantly that took me back to the heart attack where I was like, I know what that moment's like. Like I got to see my own eulogy. Mm. I got to wow. see if I fucking died, what it would have been like. And it wasn't what I assumed it would be. I assumed it would be a bunch of haters being like, fuck you and fuck clerks and blah, blah, blah. And instead it was people who were just like, I'm glad he's here. I, maybe I don't like all his movies, but I'm glad he's fucking here. Like it, that was very, very meaningful. I've, I've, I've gotten that too. I've received that. Cause like, I've, I've, I've also just been doing a lot of podcasts yeah. in general. And sometimes I'll see people be like, yeah, I don't really care for his music, but man, Seems like a nice guy. Isn't that a great compliment? It's like, but I'd rather you like, you know, fuck with me. Yes. Than that. 100%. Any day. You know what I mean? I never bristle at that. I'm never like, what do you mean you don't like my movies? I'm like, great. Like, is I made so many movies at this point that I'm like, chances are maybe I made one thing that you fucking like, <laughs> but it's more meaningful when somebody's just like, I like him. Yeah. Like, I like the cut of his jib or whatever the fuck that. 
that is that means far more than somebody being like, oh, I liked Chase Amy or whatever. Because I made those movies to to meet the world, right? Like Clerks was like me going, hi, my name's Kevin Smith. I just want to talk to you until the day I fucking die. And the movies are an extension of that. That was how to, to start the conversation. And then like through the rest of the work, standing on stage, doing Q&As, like anytime I'm out there in the world, uh, you know, and I do that a lot. I, I created a whole second industry outside of making films where I just went out and talked about making the movies. It was always about meeting people and talking, exchanging ideas, meeting like-minded individuals. So to have somebody be like, you know, fuck his movies, but like, he's a good guy. Yeah. That's, there, I'll take that. There was a time when that actually upset me when people would say things like, like that, because I was, I was, I felt that I would, my value was in my music. Being the artist. And not, not in me. And when I realized that's like being the person is what it's all about. Um, I God, found myself. So you're figuring happy. shit out. How old are you again? 33? 33. You <laughs> figured shit out at such a young age. You figured, you figured shit out in the last fucking five years that I'm 52 and I had to go crazy and go into a fucking mental health facility to figure out. So you're way ahead of the game, son. Thank you. I, uh, it means a lot. For it's you truth though. It's truth. You. When I was in the nut house, there was a kid who was 18 years old <laughs> and I was like, God damn it. I'm so jealous of you. If I had mm. gone fucking crazy at 18 and learned all the shit we're learning at age 18, who knows what I could have fucking done with my life. When did you quit smoking? Cigarette, weed? Cigarettes. Cigarettes. I stopped smoking when I started smoking weed. Cause I used to smoke cigarettes like fucking crazy. I was a nineties kid and we smoked religiously like a badge of honor. Like fucking, we would leave cool parties and shit. Like can't smoke in here. Fuck it. We'd go stand outside. <laughs> Like it was just, it was something you did. It was like a big part of your fucking identity. So I smoked cigarettes from like 92. I started late in life. Like I, I was way late. It wasn't even in high school or some such shit. So I started at age 92. It was after Nor'easter, the Nor'easter of 92, because I got, my town was flooded and shit. My house was underwater and I had nowhere to fucking go. They were putting people in a school up on the hill. I was like, I don't want to do that. So I walked the highway to go to Quick Stop from the movies and shit. I was like, look, I'll fucking go to work at Quick Stop. That beats like sitting up in the fucking, in a shelter. And in the worst fucking weather I'd ever seen in my life, man, like fucking hurricane weather, people would come to Quick Stop and be like drenched, fucking like braving the fucking floods to be like, pack of cigarettes. And I was like, these <laughs> cigarettes must be fucking amazing. I've yeah. been selling this shit for years. I was like, let me try a cigarette. And so I started smoking right then and there. So I went from 92 to 2008. Mm. And I was on the set of Zach and Miri Make a Porno. And uh, my friend Malcolm Ingram was like, Seth Rogen wants to fucking smoke with you. And I was like, well, I fucking smoke all the time. And he's like, no, he wants to smoke weed with you. And I was like, oh my God, at this point in my life, I'd only smoked weed like fucking maybe five times ever. Yeah. So here I am at age what was it, 2008, 37 years old. Mm. And uh, I was like, um, I was like, I can't fucking smoke weed. I would never smoke weed, especially while I'm making a movie. Like I'm responsible for millions of dollars. I, I just <laughs> irresponsible. I can't do that. So he's like, you gotta face Canadians. He's like, you gotta fucking smoke with him, eh? He's like, he's a fucking stoner icon. You're a stoner icon. You gotta fucking smoke. So at the end of the movie, last fucking day, everyone else is gone. It's just me and Seth Rogen and the crew and we're doing pickup shots with Seth. Like uh, when we were halfway through the day, I sauntered up to him, sidled up to him. And I was like, so man, I said, how about after we're all done tonight, we go to the editing room and you and me smoke some of that weed I hear so much about. And he was like, finally. <laughs> That's a good Rogan. <laughs> so he came to the editing room and shit, because I'm the editor, and so we were watching outtakes, and I was showing him how fucking funny he is, and not just in the scenes in the movie. Seth's 
fucking brilliant. He'll he'll perform your movie and then ad lib three, four better movies. Oh shit! And he ad libs within the fucking context of the movie. So it's like as the writer, it's like watching a dude do fucking live fan fiction of your shit. Mm. Like he ain't just trying to crack the crew up by farting or something like that. He's like literally ad libbing within character within the movie, so it's all usable. Wow. So you're like, this is fucking brilliant. So I showed him all a bunch of shit, and then he had some of that good LA weed. We were in Pittsburgh and shit. He mm. had it shipped out, I guess. And so we smoked a joint. I hadn't fucking smoked weed since like 96 at that point. Damn. And I was like, I, I just, was in first grade. <laughs> <laughs> I liked who I was when we were smoking. I was like, oh, I put away all my pretenses and dropped all my airs and shit. And I was just, I was just being, and mm. I was like, this is fucking great. And so I didn't smoke again after that. That was in November. And then it wasn't until July that we, me and the wife had the house to ourselves, like her, parents have always lived with us and been like a multi-generational household. So they helped us raise Harley, my daughter. So they had taken Harley to like Big Bear or some such shit. And I was like, you know, Jen, my wife was like, we got to do something fucking cool. And nobody's in the house because normally we're surrounded by people like infantilized because her parents literally live with us. And she, Sounds so, like me. <laughs> she was like, you got, we got to do something fucking cool. I was like, you want to be transgressive? You want to do something fucking dark? Like fuck on a church altar or something oh, like shit. that? And she's like, no, Willie, we can just do it here at the house. And, and I was like, well... I was like, there's weed in the safe. Somebody gave us weed. I was like, your friend Trish gave us weed three years ago for Christmas. Oh my God. I was like, what if we fucking smoked that weed? And she was like, all right. And so we fucking smoked weed and like, it was bliss. Like we had a great time. We went out to this restaurant that was in the Hotel Sofitel. It used to be called Simon. And they had this Simon LA and they had the circus platter that was like cotton candy, fucking like homemade hostess looking cupcakes, a shake, peanut butter, fucking ding dongs. Oh, and we just sat there eating it and feeding each other. We were like fucking in a Bacchus painting, like fucking ancient Greece and shit, making out in public. You know, at this point, we'd been married for like almost 10 fucking years at this point. And we were just acting like kids and we cabbed back to the house and like our neighbors, we never talked to our neighbors. We saw our neighbors walk in the house. We were like, hey, man, what are you guys doing? <laughs> I said, I see you got porta potty outside your house. What are you guys doing in there? And there's a gay couple. They're like, oh, we're having our counters replaced. I was like, can we see? And they're like, sure. And they invite us into the house. And they were like, this is the new counter we're putting in and shit. And I was like, ooh, what kind of wood is this? And they're like, cherry wood. I was like, turn to Jen. I was like, fucking cherry wood, right? And shit. So we went home after that across the street. And we like fucked like teenagers. And I was like, I like this fucking weed. I was like, you know, like fucking, this is the truth. I was like, I'm 30 fucking eight years old at this point. I was like, why am I not smoking weed? I made all those movies about smoking weed. I was like, I'm going to start smoking weed at the end of the day, like six o'clock at night when I'm done with my work and shit, I think I've earned it. I will start smoking weed and shit. She was like, good for you. And so I started doing that on the regular. And then after about a week of doing that, I was like, well, I don't really have a real job. I don't really have to wait till six o'clock. I could probably <laughs> fucking start smoking early. Let me dial this shit back to noon, man. Noon is good. I start smoking at noon. That's responsible. So I did that for about a week. And then I was like, you know, life would be so much better if I just woke up and started smoking, waking and baking. Like, why the fuck am I holding out and shit? So I became a wake and baker at age 38 and I smoked weed fucking hardcore. I ain't bragging, but like, I, I went on Be Real show, smoked him under the fucking table. Oh, snap. In that car, he has that show where you get in the car and you fucking close the doors yeah, yeah, and you yeah. smoke out and shit. And I lasted longer than, than Be Real and whatnot. So yeah. I, I became Flex. a hard, I was a big flex. It was one of those few Yes. I, I mean, I want to, I hopefully don't get mad, but he <laughs> no. caught to it that day. He was like, damn, you smoke. So 
I became a pretty hardcore smoker for the first five years, smoking tons and tons. But then the last 10 years, like just, there's never a moment where THC wasn't in my system. I wake up, I smoke, smoke all fucking day long. And then, you know, caviar gold made weed for me. So we had snoogans, snoochie boochies and, and, uh, and fucking berserker. And they still exist. These strains are so fucking fire. He infuses, cavi Mike infuses them. So it ain't just a joint. It's like you're smoking a joint. It's got 75% THC and shit. Sounds like you're. Oh, sounds like a fucking acid trip. It truly, honestly, it was. I spent the last fucking 10 years of my life completely numb. That's what I realized when I was in Sierra Tucson. So when I went into the nut house, I was not like, oh, I'm going to give up smoking weed. But I was there for 28 days and they don't let you smoke weed and shit. And when I was getting out, I was like, well, I haven't smoked weed in like almost a month. Let me see how long I can keep going. So this Tuesday, it'll be 17 weeks since I fucking smoked. Now, that's not me shitting on fucking weed. I love weed yeah. so much. But what I realized was I had an emotional fucking wound and weed was a really nice Band-Aid. And I fucking took it off, put it on that emotional wound. And I was like, right the fuck on. Then the wound got bigger. Mm. Then I started putting more Band-Aids on mm, it and shit. Wow. And so one day when I walked into that fucking joint, it was no longer a wound with a Band-Aid on it. I was wrapped up like a fucking mummy just covered in bandages. Wow. Like I, I loved weed because it allowed me to be present and not be present at all. Like I'd be fucking stoned as fuck and you can, my, you do my job stoned as fuck. I'm not lifting heavy machinery or anything like that. So I realized, oh shit, that's problematic behavior. Like it's no longer, I'm not just smoking weed because like, hey, I like to smoke weed. Um, and it wasn't, weed's not an addictive substance like booze where if you don't get it, you fucking yeah, yeah. rage and shit like that. It's become incredibly socially acceptable yeah. and whatnot. And it became a big part of my identity. Like whether, it, even back when I made just the early Jay and Silent Bob movies, people were like, you fucking smoke weed? And I was like, not really. But then for the last 15 years of my career, so first 15, no weed. Second 15, all fucking weed, marinated in fucking THC. <laughs> and I, I loved it and I don't regret it. I'm not sitting here going like, fucking, I wasted my life. Because again, you could be present and not present at the same time but it was a lot of numbness for me. Mm. And that was me just numbing rather than dealing with shit. Like, you know, my kid been in therapy for like 13 years and I always felt her generation was soft. I'd be like, these fucking soft therapy kids, man, they can't deal with anything. What I realized after I got out of the nut house was like, Every time you say that, it's just, we're going to, we're just going to have a counter every time a nut house ding. They hate it when you call it that. I used to call it the booby hatch. So like, don't call it that either. But when I got out, I realized yeah, shit, funny. her generation way stronger than my generation. My generation never dealt with anything. Her generation deals with it. So they go into therapy and they talk to their fucking therapist because they deal with their shit rather than just suppressing our, our shit like my generation has done for fucking years and years. So when I came out, I was like, I'm gonna try to see how long I can keep this going. And like I said, Tuesday, it'll be 17 fucking weeks. Do I miss it? There have been times I went through a bad fucking two months. My mom almost died. She's been in the hospital for the last two fucking months. Um, you know, when I went into the hospital and saw my mom fucking like out on fentanyl, like when she opened her eyes and just rolling around her head and she's got a fucking tracheostomy in her throat, tube down her fucking, down her nose, hooked up to wires and shit. That would have been a good day to be numb, you yeah. know, to be like, fucking sucks to be you, you know, and just kind of like not fucking pained by seeing my mother in 
obvious agony and not shit. to interrupt you but i've always been the type of person that because you know i do i love scotch uh, and you know especially recently i've i've smoked a lot more weed i gave it up when my son was born because i was scared if he cried i'd hear it in the 10th dimension and freak out and bought all this <laughs> other shit um the dimension. <laughs> yeah, for you real. must get better weed than i do i got me. some good ass weed though. I'm gonna, <laughs> shout out sladro okay Slaydro. caviar gold shout out caviar gold yeah sladro's my homie he just he just brings me all, all this crazy weed um, but I was going to say, I've noticed about myself whenever mm. I'm going through something, especially like emotionally or physically that I'm dealing with, I don't do anything. And You'll I leave it all behind. I'll, yeah. Like I won't drink. It's I won't. It's important to be there, to be crisp while you're going Even when shit. it's hard. Yeah. yeah you know especially what I mean? when it's fucking hard. Good time to be stoned is when everything's easy. I agree. But fucking a, the best time to not be stoned, to be completely present is when the painful shit is happening. Because then you'll know you're not an addict. Mm. Then you'll know that like you control it, it don't control you. And again, I ain't shitting on weed. Like God bless anybody who fucking smokes weed and can, and can keep it going and stuff. For me, I just did 15 years. I'm going to try the next 15 without. Now, 15 years from now, I'll be fucking 67. You better be damn skippy as I head into those fucking golden years. I'll be high as fucking a kite, man. And they'll have that. If the <laughs> weed Nelson. is as good now, they'll have that fucking crazy super weed. Well, you don't even have to smoke it. You'll just ingest it through your mind. <laughs> so I'll ride out the rest of my fucking dark days as my body falls apart, fucking high as a kite. But I feel for the like, next 15, I want to be here. I feel like it's also, what I've learned as I get older, like everything for me was always so finite. Like, it's like, no, nope, this is what I'm going to do. I'm doing this right now. Uh, da, da, da. Or even albums or, or things I'm working on. Like, this is is what I'm working on to the point where it's like, maybe I'm not even inspired to do that, but I got to do, I got to finish it. And I've learned as I got older, like, dude, just go with the flow. And it's like, you could wake up tomorrow completely at peace, whatever. And be like, you know what? I'm going to smoke a joint and I'm going to smoke a joint for the right reasons. And that's what I've learned. And I think that's a, that's like, it's such a great mentality to mm. have where you're like, Hey, maybe, maybe I smoked for 15 years. Maybe I won't for 15, maybe this, maybe that. Um, but it's really cool to see, your relationship with it. Now, not to pivot too much because it's like, bro, we've been going. This is, <laughs> I, we've been going, okay? So I got, I, I have one or two more things I'd like to ask do, you. Do, do. You know something that I've noticed about your, um, it's actually funny saying this because of Clerks, uh, but uh, uh, that I've noticed in so, so many of your films is color, is people of color. Um, you know, even start, specifically starting with uh, Chasing Amy. Um, what's the gentleman's Dwight name? Yule? The actor? Dwight Yule who played Hooper. Yeah, the dude who gave the speech in the yeah, beginning, yeah, right? The Star Wars to speech. Ha to have this gay black man open this movie in the 90s, bro. Yeah. But that all credit goes to him. Like, I met Dwight and uh through joey i was i was dating joey adams at the time and uh she was friends with parker posey and parker and dwight had been in a hal hartley movie called flirt and i was a huge hal hartley fan so we were all hanging out one day and i was hanging out with dwight and he's just an amazing individual man and such a character and stuff and so like i fell in love with him that day i was like i'm gonna put this guy in a movie but i never said like i'm the guy who did i introduced myself but i you know this was 1996 so it wasn't like people didn't necessarily fucking know my name. People don't necessarily know my name now. Most people are like, hey, Kevin James. And I'm like, yeah, I'll tell Leah, <laughs> Leah Remini you said hi. But he was like talking to me the whole time about, because I'd ask him about like, what's Hal like? And what was it like making flirt and blah, blah, blah. And he was kind of like educating me on filmmaking and stuff like that and telling me how movies are made and stuff. And then finally, like after a couple hours, he goes, what do you do, Kevin? 
And I was like, oh, I make films too. Uh, he's like, you made a film? What have, what have you made? And I said, I made Clerks. And he started laughing. He's like, I was literally telling you how to make a movie and you fucking made Clerks for heaven's sake. Oh, wow. So I was like, please don't worry about it. And so I fell in love with him and I was like, I'm, I said, Dwight, that day, I was like, Dwight, I'm going to write you a character in the next movie, man. Would you play it? And he goes, absolutely. Wow. So that character exists and is ahead of his time. And in that movie, it's ahead of his time because Dwight, was ahead of his time because I met Dwight. He was such a powerful individual that I was like, I'm totally writing him into this flick. And people gave me credit for that. Now that's the problem when you make movies. When you, when you write lyrics, you're mostly pulling from you, but you're not stealing another individual's identity. Mm. When you write movies, like I, Jason Mewes existed as Jason Mewes. And I took his whole fucking character and made a character of that character. Um, Joey Adams, like her character in Chasing Him is literally fucking stolen from her. Um, you know, Holden, Ben's character is stolen from fucking me. Dwight was stolen from fucking Dwight. And what happens is then people go like, you're a wonderful writer. And you're like, eh. I mean, you are because I think they're but I'm also, a thief. But no, like, get no. to know me, and I'm fucking. You, you'll wind up in a goddamn movie and be like, "That's me, piece of shit." You better just, you better do look, me like you did him, and just put me in the movie. Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna just say that right done now. You go put me in, put, oh, you you're put in me the in next movie, movie for sure. Oh, wait, 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 we say it right here. Fucking yeah, word is bond. Have my agent right reach here. out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, but 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 there is something. And I ain't talking to no JJ Abrams shit. Where I'm like standing in front of a mic. You are in the movie. Yeah. Not to take away from JJ, but it's a high bar to clear. That's that'd be a, that'd be a dream. Anyway, you can act. I've seen you act. I try <laughs> from time to time. Sometimes I fake cry for fun. Anyway, uh, I think, it, I think that's actually an art to be able to, I mean, first of all, we're all inspired. I listen to Nas. Nas could have a, a flow or a lyric and I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. I'm going to take that, reimagine it, re-envision it. If you and put, bid put myself it, if you flat into, out bid yeah, it, yeah, people would be like, you stole that from Nas. Yeah, that's ridiculous. But what I'm saying, unless you're, it's homage and you're kind of right. like saying the bar he said right, and you're like, right. shout out to Nas, shout out to Nas. But um, <laughs> with this, for you to write a human being- I had to meet that human being first. Otherwise I never would have wrote that I character. I mean, look at all of life, man. You know what I'm saying? Like look at any great right Hemingway or Tarantino himself. I mean, Tarantino, are we going to, are we really, come on, bro. Like what's that, you know, like, uh, he's the king of homage. Of course. And there's nothing fucking you wrong talk with about it. Like you can't be it unless you see it. He sees it. He's seen it and all. And then he puts it through his filter and then gives it back to you. And you're like, I love this shit. One of the most beautiful moments I ever had with Quentin was, um, we made this movie uh, red state with Michael Parks. Michael Parks is, was Quentin's favorite fucking actor on the planet. Wow. Uh, Michael Parks is the guy who in from dust to dawn is like son number one, <laughs> that guy. Yeah. And so he's been in a couple Quentin movies where Quentin like loved this guy when fucking nobody else did. He was in a TV show years ago in the late sixties called then came Bronson mm. had one season where he's a guy on a motorcycle finding himself. So, you know, he'd been in twin peaks years later, David Lynch put him in a thing. But Parks was in like the Bible, with, directed by John Huston, the great John Huston. That was great because he was a big director. I don't know about him as an individual because Parks told me a story about how John Huston literally tried to kill him on set. Whoa. And I was like, I thought he was being facetious. He goes, no, he tried to take my fucking life and stuff. So Parks had a very complicated relationship Somebody with the business. Somebody call HR. What you the know, fuck? kidding, fuck, <laughs> man. So he had a complicated relationship with the business and sometimes... Didn't he? This man clearly did not get what he should have got in life. 
You know what I'm saying? Like he was positioned as the next James Dean, but mm. some people saw him as difficult and fucking like blacklisted him from business and shit. So um, Parks, like we, we made this movie Red State. Quentin was working on, I forget what he was writing. I think he was writing um, uh, 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 a fucking German movie, the Nazi oh, uh, movie. Oh, Inglorious Bastards. Inglorious Bastards. So he would bury himself and then disappear from the scene. And then when he came back on the scene, catch up on pop culture. So he'd heard that like Parks was in this movie that we took to Sundance and I was touring around and stuff. And he was like, can you bring the movie to watch to my place? Because at his house, he's got his own movie theater, 35 millimeter projection. <laughs> I said, fuck yeah, I'll do that. I said, can I bring Parks? And he's like, absolutely, fucking wow. bring Parks. So- me, Parks, and Quentin sitting in Quentin's movie theater watching Red State. And Quentin's smoking weed and shit like that. Hey, and he's watching like this it. movie and he's like loving fucking, you know, it's all fucking Parks. It's a fucking, it's a showcase for Michael Parks. So if you ever want to feel good about something you've done, watch it with a fucking stoned Quentin Tarantino. It's like, <laughs> it's like you made this movie for me, man. I was like, I fucking totally did and shit. And so <laughs> after we watched the movie and he's blowing up Parks all throughout the movie, just grabbing him, being like, God damn it, you're the fucking king and shit like that. And Parks, you know, fucking being called the king by the most fucking yeah, yeah. inarguably culturally important, uh, most important director of our culture. So after the movie was done, he's like, come into the house. And we went into Quentin's house and, you know, Quentin's got this big S TV and he's got, of course, a DVD player there, but then he also has a laser disc player and a VHS. Laser disc. And there's a stack wow. of fucking old VHS tapes right there. He didn't have to go digging for him. And he reaches to the third one under the pile, pops in this VHS and it's a fucking a volleyball movie. I think it's called Spiked that fucking Parks was in, in like the early seventies. And he and just shit. has it? Just has it. Not only did he run it, because he was like, let me show you how brilliant this man is. And he runs this fucking scene where like, you know, it's a cheesy fucking volleyball movie. And all of a sudden Parks comes in and it becomes a fucking clinic on performance. And there's Quentin fucking reviewing this guy's performance to this guy's fucking face. And Parks is an old ass man at this point, 73, 74 or whatever the fuck. But you could see him fucking glowing because Quentin's blowing him up. Quentin finds gold in goddamn cheese. Wow. In a pile of cheese that most people would dismiss. He used to go through the fucking... TV guide and look for like fucking Michael Parks in old movies playing at one, two in the morning. Then he would circle and program his VCR and save it. He had that fucking tape for 10, 15 he's fucking obsessed. years. That's he why he's the great. Guy, but watching him obsess about the guy in front of, in the, front guy. of the guy who got something out of it. Yeah, like yeah, Parks yeah. wasn't so like fucking obtuse where he was like, ah, whatever. Fuck. He was like, this is Quentin Tarantino saying this shit. Like you yeah. could tell he was glad I was there that there was a witness <laughs> so that like fucking someone would tell the fucking story and shit. But what he's, he's the best of us, man, because he consumes the culture and then spits it back through his own fucking prism and shit. And I never would have found Michael Parks if it weren't for fucking Quentin. I remember going to see from dusk till dawn at the Lemley sunset five before it even came out, like an early screening that dimension was having. They were like, come see this fucking flick. And, you know, that was the Quentin and Robert movie. Couldn't wait to see that alone about vampires, like fucking yeah. checks all the boxes. But in the first five minutes of the movie, 10 minutes of the movie, this man gives this insane fucking off the charts, brilliant performance. I don't even know who this fucking old man was, but I was like, I said to Scott Mosier, this is 1995, 96. I was like, before I die, I have to fucking work with this wow. man, I, this fucking acting Yoda. And I never had anything for him until... I wrote Red State. And then I was like, fucking, this is a thing that Michael Parks could do. And then year, uh, two years, three years after that, I wrote Tusk for Parks 
And he played that part as well. Two parts that he fucking acted the fuck out of. Quentin has the theater here in town, the New Beverly that he yeah. owns. I haven't gone yet. I really want to go. Only shows 35 millimeter I know, prints because he's got wait. a library. He was just playing Rumble in the Bronx yes. like the other day. 35 like, millimeter print. I know. I he's got go. all these fucking 35 millimeter prints and shit. Tusk was a movie we shot digitally. There was no 35 millimeter print. Quentin called up and said, can I make a 35 millimeter print of Tusk what? so that I could show during Michael Park's birthday week every year? And wow. I was like, fucking, of course, the only print of Tusk that exists, 35 millimeter print Quentin has in his home library what? because he loves Michael Park so a much. fucking story, yeah. man. He's, he's the real deal, man. He's the best of us. But like, without him, I don't get to... A, see the greatest performer in my life, and B, fucking work with him, put words in that fucking man's mouth. Two of my most fulfilling movies, Red State and Tusk, have nothing to do with Jay and Silent Bob. Red State's the movie that if I took my name off of, nobody knows I directed it because wow. it don't look like a Kevin Smith movie, don't feel like it and shit. It pushed me to be my best because he introduced me through his work to an actor that made me push for fucking more. Sadly, Parks passed away and mm. stuff. Um, probably for the best because I would have stuck him in yoga hosers and ruined everything for him. <laughs> Shut up. But if you ever want to watch a brilliant performance, you see him in, he's uh, he's in Quentin's flicks. He uses them all the time. Um, but if you ever want to see him like showcase performance of the last 10, 15 fucking years, just drop him. Like in Red State, he plays a fucking hate monger. He plays mm-hmm. essentially, uh, what's his name? Um, Fred Phelps, the guy who used to run the Westboro Baptist Church that would oh, wow. pick it outside funerals and shit. And so he's got like an eight minute mo- hate monologue that he sings so beautifully. Like, it's crazy that periodically you have to remind yourself, like he's saying the worst shit in the world, but he's such an amazing fucking actor. And I got him. That's to like some him. American history X shit. You know what I'm saying? Like Same, watching yes. Edward Norton in that. Watching like, him do that. And you're like, like you want to hate him, shit, but it's but a beautiful it. performance. Yeah, yeah. Um, so before we go, which yes. I said like 30 minutes ago, <laughs> uh, I, I, I have one final question for yes. you. Uh, in this day and age, four of, inches hard. <laughs> I that's and, and usually, I'm lying. Three that's, inches. That's hard. usually my joke, <laughs> except it's eight inches. <laughs> so you go. Yeah, it's a Comcast remote control. I measured one time. What, what remote yeah, Comcast remote control? <laughs> okay, I don't that's know how so we, specific. I don't know too. how we just got here. Anyway, um, <laughs> measured one time. <laughs> yes. So um, I was going to say that in this in this uh, in this era in this age uh, of technology, especially like in music, where Basically, anybody can just get a laptop, barely learn a program that does a lot of shit for you, and then you can like put out studio quality sounding things. Mm. What advice would you give in today's era for young filmmakers and creatives who want to make something from their heart, but actually, you know, stand out, like like make a career from it mm. in a world of oversaturation where everybody wants to do it. And what can do you th- now. Yeah. What do you point. think that it, it takes um, for somebody to achieve their dreams? You can't look at what anybody else has done. A lot of first time filmmakers, a lot of first time artists will look at somebody else because you can't be it unless you see it first. You see somebody do it and you're like, I want to do that. And some people fall into the trap of doing that exact fucking thing. Mm. Like just mimicking, doing a Xerox uh, of whatever it I've is that there. they saw. <laughs> that, here, you can, you can. Uh, I mean, there's been many incarnations of Battlestar Galactica, right? And there was a really good one at one You're point nerd, that won Emmys and shit. But there was one in the 70s that came right after Star Wars. And you could tell they were literally just trying to do Star Wars. Mm. Started as a movie and then became a TV show. And I ain't talking about the one that they did in the 2000s, which was fucking brilliant that Ron Moore did. So you could make 
your knockoff Star Wars. And since people like space movies, maybe there's a chance that people will see it and be like, oh, I like your version of fucking Star Wars. But chances are people are always going to see it for what it is. It's like, oh, you saw Star Wars 2. And I don't mean Star Wars 2, meaning Empire Strikes Back. I mean (laughs) T-O-O. What you can do to stand out is sing your fucking song. What they've never seen is you. A lot of people put down my industry because they're like, all they make are sequels and fucking remakes and and Marvel movies and shit. Um, They do make those things because those things are guaranteed money or at least as guaranteed as you can. There are no fucking guarantees in that business. Even Kevin Feige, before he puts out the latest Marvel movie, Thursday night clenches his asshole hoping that it fucking works. No matter how much money they put into it, no matter how the formula they feel is the one that cracked the code, you are not guaranteed fucking success. Anything can fucking happen. So you can do what others have done, but and you could put down the fucking studio system. But what every studio executive, I don't care to, from the, the, the most uh, fucking idealistic to the fucking biggest hack who's just like, just give me hits. I just want hits. I have fucking Xerox hits for me. They all dream not of me. They've met me. And I've come in and I've shown them everything I can fucking do. They dream of you. They dream of the person that's going to walk in and tell them a story they've never fucking heard before with an idea they've never fucking seen before. And that's the movie they're going to finance. And that's the movie they want to make. That's the movie they desperately dream about making. Now, as I said, I've shown them all my fucking colors. They don't dream about me anymore. They dream about you. What is it you're going to do? The thing that has never been fucking seen. You have the benefit of being, I keep looking at that camera. Should I, or should I look at that one? Which this one's one. good? This one? Yeah, they're good. You have the, I'm trying to connect with them. <laughs> you have the benefit of never having sung your fucking song yet. Right now in this industry, there's a writer's guild strike going on. Mm-hmm. So ain't nobody fucking buying or selling any fucking uh, goods right now. Now is the time to make your fucking clerks, make your goddamn movie, because there's going to be an absence of material over the course of the next six fucking months. And they're going to need to stock the fucking shelves and stuff. So now's your chance to sing your fucking song. And that's what you have to sing is your fucking song. Don't fucking sing a song somebody else has done. You could, and it could work out. But your best chance of being, of punching through and being remembered is to sing the song nobody else has sung. Tell your fucking story. That's the story that ain't been told a hundred thousand fucking times. What worked about clerks is like, I was like, you know, I've, I've, I've worked in convenience stores for years. I never seen anybody make a movie set in a convenience store. And I'm gonna have the characters talk like me and my friends talk and stuff like that. I told something, I sang an original fucking song and I didn't know that that's why it would fucking connect. I just didn't know any better. Mm. Like I didn't want to do what I'd seen be done before. And also I didn't have the means to mm. do what I'd seen be done before. I couldn't make fucking Star Wars. I didn't have the money, but I had just enough money to be like, all right, what if I just showed them what life's like when you work in a convenience store and how you do anything you can at the job except fucking work to get through the fucking day. So you got a fucking story in you, a perspective, a POV, man. Like this is what I always tell young artists. Your voice is your currency in this life, man. Uh, The prism through which you see things, uh, that is uniquely fucking yours. And that voice is fucking valuable. 
because somebody out there is waiting for that fucking currency to spend it on your fucking behalf. They dream about you in this business, man, just like they dream about you in his fucking business. They dream about the person that ain't done the thing that's been done before. They want to see you come through that door. They want to see, they want to meet the Wachowskis who are like, we got a fucking crazy idea for this movie <laughs> called The Matrix. They dream about people like you and they've not met you yet. You are their best fucking hope because they've not heard your story yet. Your story hasn't been told. Don't sit there and be like, nobody gives a fuck about my life. Everybody gives a fuck about your life because your life is uniquely yours as it is, resembles other people's lives. And your job is to speak for those who will never get the opportunity to speak for themselves. We were talking about earlier in the podcast, people play you like an avatar. We're like, you're my guy, man, you're my guy. Like if I was ever gonna do it, that's how I'd fucking do it. They look to artists who, who get their shit out there to speak for them. And you are one of those fucking people who could speak for fucking millions, but you have to be honest and say the fucking thing nobody's ever said before. And you can do it. It doesn't take guts. You have no fucking choice. Your voice <laughs> is your currency. Spend it like you're a billionaire because that voice will never go away. If you're pretty and young, enjoy it. One day you'll be fucking ugly and fucking old. It all goes away. But your voice only gets more clear the older you get, man. The older you get, it gets more defined. Never changes, it just gets more defined. Your voice is your currency. Spend it like you're a billionaire. That's the best advice I have. Wow. Write yourself. Be yourself. Man, thank you, you for- You do you, as the kids used to say. Do you, famo. <laughs> uh, that was beautiful, man. Thank you for that. You know what's beautiful? I'm going to throw this out there. So when we did that music video, yeah. like in one of the th side things, I was like, do me a favor. Like I'm, me and Jay are going to pop up and fucking like interrupt you. Cause we do like, we were putting together a, these are the rules of the movie theater. Like turn yep. your phone off, fucking don't do this, don't do that. And so before every movie like that we show that plays. So I see you over really? and over and over <laughs> again at Smodcastle Cinemas in Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey. And he, uh, Logic is responsible for the beat of like, you know, shut up, don't talk to you in the movie. So the first one is no texting, no fucking porn hub and just throw your phone away. The second one is like, be quiet. So is a shot of Bobby by himself in the theater. He's got popcorn. He's going like, yo, I live by the beat. I died by the beat since 1995. And then Jay and Silent Bob pop up and Jay goes, shut the fuck up. It's movie time. <laughs> so I see you literally every day I'm at that fucking theater. And it's so oddly now surreal to be sitting across from you for the last four fucking hours <laughs> in real life and shit. When I'm like, I still see you every day. I, I thank you for doing that because it makes me smile every time I see it. It makes the audience laugh every time I say it. I've seen it with an audience of 12 people. I've seen it with an audience of 230 and they always fucking uh, laugh. Oops. And there's a small portion of the audience, man, because mostly old people look like me who are like, yo, that's logic. Every fucking kid <laughs> is like, yo, that's logic. And I get a little bit more credibility and respect hey. because of that. So thank you for that. Thank you. And what do you mean? You've been, what did I do that? Like nine months ago? Like I've been staring at your fucking face my <laughs> whole life. So to be sitting over here, it, now it, it goes it, both ways. Yeah, it means the world to me. Um, thank you for, Thank you for being a good man. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for being vulnerable. Um, I We've guess, been talking about doing this since I was in the house. You were I like, know. we're going to sit down and shoot a and video. We're going to talk about what matters most, you know? And that's why I could end this saying, yeah, of course. Like, thank you for your films. Thank you for your art. Thank you. But like, man, thank you for being you. Thank you for being a person. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you for being somebody, uh, for those out there watching and listening, who they just need right now. Thank you for your words. Nobody needs a 52 year old man. <laughs> we all 
Need a 52. <laughs> um, thank you um, from the bottom of my heart. I hope this isn't the last time we, we do something fun like this. You're in the and- movie, bro. bro. The 430 <laughs> movie is the next movie I'm making. It's called the 430 movie. We're shooting in that same fucking theater. Really? So you can come back and act in it again. All right, man. Give me a, give me a part. I'll play whatever. Oh, you'll get a part. I got a big part for you. you got it's a fucking big part. four inches. It's the size of a Comcast <laughs> fucking remote control. Okay, I like it. Um, is there anything you would like to leave our listeners with? Uh, go out and make some art, man. Like there's two paths in this life. There's destruction and there's creation. And fucking destruction is full of people. Like you can't even move in those lanes because it's so crowded. Creation, those lanes are wide open because it takes a little bit of something of yourself in order to put yourself out there to do a thing. And so people are reticent to do that. Because of that, you'll drive forever, man. Go make some art today. You're an artist. Don't fucking sit there and be like, I'm not an artist. I'm not like you guys. You're exactly like us. Go make some shit today. Making shit's better than breaking shit. Kevin, thank you. I love you. I love you as well. All right. Bobby. Now get the fuck out of my sight. I'm leaving. Fucking leaving, Robert.